Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show. I'm super excited to be doing this one. We have a PhD with us today, uh, Dr. Hand, who will be joining us and is specializing in couples therapy for more than 30 years. And on the Human Behavior Show, we'd love to discuss psychology and human behavior and relationships is actually where human behavior really manifests itself, where you experience and you get to witness humans really behave in so many different ways and the different psychological practices that happen. So it becomes super interesting. And, and myself, I'm a founder of a, of a startup in relationship wellness, and I have learned how key human behavior and psychology is to a functioning relationship, a well-functioning relationship as well, and what things you can do to help navigate one. So I'm really looking forward to this one. So Hans, first of all, welcome to the show. Uh, love that I've got you here, a professional in this space. I'd love to kind of hear your background. I'd love for you to tell the listeners on on, on what you do. Delighted to be here, Dr. Sohaib. And uh, as you can probably hear from my slight accent, I am from Germany and I got my education as psychologist in Germany. And this June, it is 40 years that I immigrated to United States. And I'm now for all this time in the Bay Area in Berkeley, California. And I am interested like you in human behavior. And especially uh, as we know is that having a long-term vital fulfilling relationship is probably one of the greatest and most challenging endeavors that human beings can have. And maybe as challenging as maybe having three or four teenage kids at home. And uh, we know from divorce rates and anecdotal evidence that it is very hard to maintain a long-term relationship. There are all kinds of tricks and difficulties that come up in this time, and especially because we ourselves as individuals go through all kinds of developmental stages. And I think one nice way is to say we have maybe only two, three, or four really important relationships in our lives, and sometimes we have them with the same partner. So that, I think, illustrates how it difficult it is to always kind of come together again when there are life events happening and we go ourselves through all kinds of phases as child rearing, empty nest, and so on. Thank you, Hans. Super, I'm super excited for this one. Actually. I actually have a lot of questions lined up and um, obviously it's so nice to connect with you, someone from you know uh, San Francisco, the Bay Area, um, Silicon Valley, something a place where I really... I'm excited about what's happening in terms of startups and tech, but also in the space of psychology and having Stanford on your doorstep and, you know, you're, you being from UC Berkeley, it's going to be a super fascinating conversation. You're right. I also look at relationships as um, a very interesting field on what makes us compatible with someone, what makes us uh, help us um, maintain a relationship. And we know, I mean, me as a medical doctor, board certified in lifestyle medicine, a lot of the research on how a well-functioning relationship uh, brings you happiness, is good for your mental health, is good for your longevity. So that is key. And I know you do specialize in relationship therapy as well. So we're going to go into that as well as we go on with the show. And as a reminder to listeners, this will be available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So please do subscribe there. And if you have any questions, feel free to call in. We're doing this live on Calling App. 
So, Hans, to start off with, okay, I want to know what makes a successful relationship. What are some of the key contributing factors to a relationship being successful? And can that be done when picking the right partner at that point, or is it done at a later stage? Um, We know that a relatively fulfilling, happy relationship can be achieved. We have some research about happy uh, marriages, long-term relationships, and it seems that the consensus often is that people just like each other. They like to hang out with each other, or as some couples have said, whenever we are at the dinner party, I try to be next to my partner because he or she or they, they are the most interesting. So I think the likability, the compatibility comes in over lifetime when our uh, hormonal cocktail, our drugs wear down. We're coming down from the high of want to make love every day and uh, find each other so incredibly interesting and everything converges and overlaps. So we know what happens is that then the deeper structures appear and the deeper structures are nat- naturally related to, f- from, to our upbringing. So to say, the more we become deep family, uh, the more our deeper family of origin structures appear. And this is one of the major obstacles that couples face when they do not account, do not know, do not know how to deal with these triggers that come from their upbringing. And um, the one of the most important tools that we have to our disposal at this time is that we have the attachment theory which uh, was developed by Bowlby, and it gives us a blueprint of how we have attached to our original caregiver, often the mother. And this attachment bond that is evolutionary-based, that, so to say, guarantees our survival, primes us for later attachment in adult life. And there are crazy correlations that um, relate between early attachment in infancy and later attachment as adults. And then these attachment processes are responsible for a lot of derailment, getting stuck, misunderstanding, and error creation. And if you like, we could go a tiny little bit into these uh, different types that emerge that create so much havoc. And knowing of, of this can help a couple tremendously. Hans, that's super interesting. And I'm really interested to find out more on that as well. Thanks for sharing that. So you talk about attachment theory being really important and and your childhood and how you've been brought up. So do you think we should seek in our partners a similar upbringing in in the partner? Should we be looking at having similar values? Um, What what does the research say about those things? I think the best mix is probably having enough differences that it's going to be challenging, interesting, and uh, enough uh, compatibility that not everything becomes an obstacle and uh, becomes a fight. So I think that kind of mix is probably the best. As we know, the brain, uh, what we're learning uh, about the brain is that the brain likes newness It also likes the same. And interestingly, the brain 
likes the same with partners, with caregivers. Uh, babies, infants, and toddlers and children do not like switching partners all around. We have quite some evidence from people who grew up with hippies where it was relatively loose. This is not a good uh, model to bring up children successfully. So our brain is actually stuck and likes the same with people, while on the other side, it likes newness and adventure. And so um, partners that can provide, so to say, both have a stability and the ability to create newness, to go out to adventure, I think these are the most successful mixes. Hans, I'm like, actually, I'm learning a lot here. And um, a lot more questions are popping up there as well. So um, I guess novelty, humans, we seek novelty. And we've explained is that degree of similarity, but also that difference um, to really, you know, get you interested in someone and something that, you know, will keep you interested. Um, so with that, um, I mean, divorce rates, as you pointed out, are, are pretty high. It's about, I think, about 40 to 50%. Um, and at my startup, we talk a lot about relationship wellness and maintenance of relationships and seeking therapy and all of that. And we'll, we'll get into the importance of that and how, what can be done there. Um, when seeking a partner, um, what are, what are, what are the best ways? I mean, online versus offline. Um, how would one know that someone is, is right for them? Or is it a matter of, talking to as many people as possible until you find the person who you feel is the, is the best fit. Um, so I, I'm so glad that I'm not in the market of having to look for a partner. I'm together with my wife for many decades <laughs> because it seems sometimes scary because as you know, love has become a commodity and uh, so it, there's a certain disenchantment about what a love and a caretaking uh, can actually mean. So I would think um, not getting into certain apps or any of these recommendations, I think it's very important that um, whoever you find that you vet this person. And I would vet this person with uh, family members or with friends who you trust, who know you, and then they can assess, is this person a good fit for you? And maybe uh, key questions would be, does this person really care about you? And does this person allow you to truly grow? So these would be parameters that I would say, please use the vestment system about other people. And then, um, of course, you can also um, learn about the attachment systems. If you learn about their books are like attached or the paradigm I work with uh, PACT that's developed by Dr. Stan Tetkin. He has a wonderful book out, you know, Wired uh, for Love and uh, also Wired for Dating. So there are very helpful hints how to choose a partner. So we know the traditional was the three C's, uh, you know, chemistry, then compatibility, and then character. And I think there's still a lot of truth to it. You go deeper and deeper. You want to be sure that there's chemistry, that there's affinity, there is attraction, there's sexual connection. You want to be sure 
that certain things in your life line up about what you do, your values. And then thirdly, you want to be sure that the person you would uh, maybe uh, commit yourself for a lifetime relationship has a really good character, is really a trustworthy person with integrity. And that was like an excellent answer. And I get a lot of questions with that on a fighting. Is fighting needed in a, in a healthy relationship? How much fighting is normal and, and what would be abnormal? So I think, uh, Sahai, yes, I think fighting is necessary. And of course, we uh, uh, sapiens, we come in all kinds of versions and models. And um, some people's fighting is the other person's boredom, or some people's fighting is the other person's end of life, threatening. Uh, but we all need to somehow navigate differences. That is the issue. We are different organisms. We have developed so differently. Every situation is experienced differently. Uh, two partners listening to the to your podcast will experience this podcast differently. And so how can we navigate this without getting off the rails? A uh, good way is uh, what we're doing in our approach is that we're actually sitting the partners across from each other. So we will have face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact. So the partners can actually track the nonverbal cues. So because we know the way we are built, how evolution built us, how the organism is built, how the brain is built, it's really from the bottom up. And you could, I think a good um, metaphor would be to understand as uh, humans, as mammals, we're a big elephant and there's a little rider on top with a little head. And the rider is the brain and the little head is the prefrontal cortex. And we are trying to regulate our somatic emotional experiences, our senses, all the external and interoception that comes in in myriads every minute, every hour. And so this is the challenge, two elephants sitting across from each other, and we can help with this process by seeing these nonverbal issues, a bit of a bitter smile, looking away, not being connected, not wanting to hear what your partner has said. All of these somatic, emotional, physiological expressions can actually either facilitate or derail the process of discussing, fighting, or uh, finding a way through with different needs. So this is one way that you as a couple, when you have an issue, face each other and maybe take five or ten breaths together before you start. So you downregulate, you bring in your prefrontal cortex, you bring in your full brain so that you can actually process what is at stake. And I think that would be valuable advice for a lot of um, different couples listening to this podcast. Um, we have a caller as well, so I'm going to take the call. But in the meantime, um, before we go to our caller, um, Hans, so tell us about couples therapy. Um, what is um, the necessity of it for a couple? How important is it? Something we should all be doing? Um, should there be check-ins? 
um, from time to time. Um, please kind of share your knowledge on that. Yeah, I mean, um, I heard you are obviously in health, uh, you are in relational health, and I think that in some way, I would even make a case that couples therapy could be a public health issue. When you think about that still, whatever the family looks like in our age and time, uh, families are still kind of the building blocks of society. And I think each society should have an interest that these building blocks function well and are healthy. And um, I think one could say uh, the process of therapy is very similar to meditation or maybe what you are doing, emphasizing wellness, emphasizing nutrition, exercise. We're paying attention. And one could see the prefrontal cortex as this attention lamp that highlights what we're doing. And as you know, the prefrontal cortex is a very expensive instrument. And it is uh, approximately 8% of our body mass, but we could say that it's between 20 to 25% of the energy consumption. And evolution tries to conserve energy. So in this way, we are bringing attention to our relationship. We are bringing attention what we're doing. We're bringing attention to the many errors that we are committing that we cannot really escape. So in this way, therapy is an attention uh, process. And as we have meditation teachers or coaches, so I think in our day and age, there is no shame that we're seeking help from a third party that can help us to mitigate, that can help us to negotiate, that can help us to educate these processes. So of course, me as a couples therapist, I am all for couples therapy. Uh, before crisis, we know that people, couples, normally come two years too late into couples therapy. Uh, when they come earlier, I've seen it many times, um, maybe the dissolvement of the family can be really uh, avoided. So I'm, we're inviting couples to come in. Uh, if there are difficulties, there are crises, we invite couples to come in before they maybe get married. And we invite couples to come in, so to say, as a good family doctor, come in for a checkup, come in for a tune-up, come in when you have a flu or your hand is broken. And I can really see that because um, as a board certified lifestyle medicine doctor, the, the five spokes we see is, is wellness, as you said, one being sleep, two being nutrition, three being exercise, four being mental well-being and stress. And then five is, is relationships. So relationships is super important to your health, like you've described. So with relationship you know, therapy, couples therapy, we see how integral that is and can be helpful in navigating a relationship when there are certain difficult points. So would you say if a couple is having a lot of disagreements, a lot of arguments, um, is it helpful? Is it wise to approach a therapist at that point? Um, I think it's sometimes helpful to have that third perspective on helping to settle disputes and can help couples talk it through. Um, so would that, would that be the right time to, to go to a therapist? Absolutely. Um, 
we often say, you know, uh, couples therapy is cheaper than divorce. And, um, of course, not even talking about the emotional, mental, and uh, physical toll that it might have on the partners. And if they have children, then on the children. So um, we, what we can do in couples therapy, often couples come in with the wrong paradigm about the model, how a relationship could work. Couples come in with that uh, uh, marriage is basically a compromise. No, it is not. It is an ongoing negotiation about different needs. And if it would be a compromise, you would never, ever get what you really want. I think uh, each partner should get what they really need at some times, what they really want. They should get their dream. And we are helping the couple to come to the underlying issues. The couples come in with their perspective, of course, that their partner is wrong, that their partner is more to blame. They might coach it more nicely and maybe more politically correct, but I think we are all specialists in blaming others. So the process is to really come to a certain self-confrontation, what do I contribute to this uh, uh, bad relationship that I didn't want? And then we often go into the underlying issues. And in order to get to underlying issues, as I mentioned before, uh, Shohaib, is that we are looking at the nonverbal clues, the way they interact, the way they sit, the way they relate to each other, the prosody, the way they talk to each other, because there are often revelations about what they're holding on resentments or what they're holding on wounds that still haven't been healed, they haven't been repaired. And then we're getting to these issues that maybe, for example, it could be that one partner feels never be fully chosen. They feel like the other partner just moved in with them in the apartment because, as you know, the rents are very high in San Francisco. Uh, but that's not a basis for really a sustainable long-term and lifetime partnership that you just move in because of these material reasons. People want to be chosen. It should be you. No other person will do. So that could be one of the issues that comes up. Or, of course, we're colliding that for some reason, suddenly our partner becomes this uh, very controlling parent that we try to get away from. And how did it help? Uh, how did it happen that I'm suddenly be the controlling partner? So we're trying to then unravel and uh, these underlying issues that uh, couples project often onto each other. And uh, projection in our model is natural, normal. We just want to use it. We want to get a grip on it so it doesn't become a destructive force that brings the partners apart. So we're trying really to see how are you relating what are your errors and misconceptions? What is really going on with the two of you? So we then get to a possible solution. And when this process happens, it's often the case that then partners, when they understand it more deeply in an emotional way, then there's much more generosity. There's much more openness created. 
And then what comes back is what we would call empathy or compassion, which, of course, with couples at war is in very, very uh, low demand and very low supply. So this would be an example of a process that then will help couples to come to who they really are behind their anxieties, behind their fears, behind their fear of intimacy, behind their fear of maybe getting overly um, attached to somebody and losing their self. And when this happens, then actually the relationship can go in a different direction and then in direction and then both partners feel I am the person I want to be in this relationship and not this person I've become that I really don't like myself. Hans, I'm finding this very insightful and um, looking forward to kind of doing more on some of these topics that we've touched upon. I think you have a huge amount of information to share that listeners will find valuable. I did want to go to Omar's question. So welcome to the stage, Omar. Uh, thanks for calling in on Colin app. Um, we'd love for you to ask your question. Let's see if he's there. In the meantime, Hans, so if someone has gone through trauma or a difficult relationship or they've got out of one, how important is going to therapy before getting into a new relationship? Um, I think it is important so we are not repeating the same patterns of a dysfunctional, unfulfilling relationship especially when uh, a person knows that they have trauma background, might it be, you know, sexual abuse, might it be uh, developmental abuse, might it be now, as we know again in these times of war, that maybe these children who come from the Ukraine, that they might be having uh, war trauma. Whatever it is, these uh, developmental traumas so to say, redirect the normal developmental process of us humans. And we don't have the environmental safety necessary to prosper, to focus on our tasks, to find ourselves emotionally safe. So we are then preoccupied with finding the safety somehow inside. And uh, our organism our brain is not ready at a young age, might it be two, four, or 12, to do this very well and sufficiently. So we often end up then with protective systems, with defensive systems that are rigid, uh, that are not highly adaptable, and in the end, they become all self-defeating. So in some way, you could say that uh, the the work when we come in our 20s in the midlife is really to remodel, to redo our protective systems. So it facilitates our needs instead of uh, inhibiting it and derailing it. So in this way, um, it is important to deal with these traumatic events because as we know, trauma and the way trauma is experienced is in a high degree dependable how the response was, if there were parents that we could go to or not. As you know, there are many cases, for example, that there was sexual abuse by children and the child didn't feel safe enough to go to a parent or the parents dismissed it. 
And this will obviously deepen more and more the traumatic experiences of a child because there was no caregiver there. There was no master regulator there to help them to regulate this. And then therapy, individual as well as couples therapy, can then, after the fact, help to reprocess these traumas and make it possible for this person that this trauma doesn't have that deeply emotional physiological impact, but can be processed and therefore they are no longer derailed in the way they were from going for what they want and need. Uh, and, and with that, what would you say are some of the red flags in, in a relationship? Um, I would say, you know, you uh, obviously, obviously everybody has different red flags, right? Orange flags or yellow flags that come in. Um, it could be that somebody isn't finished, you know, with a relationship uh, before with an ex, uh, it all depends if you, we have now, of course, many more people who are in open relationships or polyamory where there are different issues at hand. But I think red flags go towards trust. Would you trust, do you really trust this person or not? Do you see any signs? Are there, is there any sign, for example, of hidden drug use or alcohol use? Are there any signs that this person has a life that they are not um, open and not opening up to. So these are flags that come up, and I would think trust is good in many ways, but not naive trust. When you're an adult, don't trust naively. No blind trust. Open your eyes. When things don't line up, don't put it away. Don't think it will be fine. When things don't line up, explore, investigate, and I think any partner, any person who has nothing to hide will welcome an open discussion, an open inquiry. Hans, um, these responses have been really getting really valuable, and a lot of listeners of the Human Behavior Show, uh, I think, would have found this very useful, and I'm, I'm sure we'll do future episodes as well, and looking forward to hosting you over on Clubhouse as well where you can get a big audience and, and have them ask you questions and maybe even set up a show. I think it'd be great to have your show focusing on each part of a relationship. So as we kind of finish off the final few minutes, um, I've got a few questions that came in, actually. Um, one is, is what makes attraction? How do we know we're attracted to someone? I know the physiology behind it, but um, are we attracted to certain people more than others? And then B, another one that came in was, um, this one has to do with um, relationships and unfaithfulness in relationships and what kind of causes people to do that and, and how can one um, recover from that? Yeah, yeah sure, Hype. As uh, you said, there are so many aspects. We can definitely talk at least for a day or two about the various aspects and the complexity of the relationships we have as sapiens. Um, so the Taking the first question about attraction, um, attraction, I think, is deeply individual. You know, one person, you can see it, for example, if I bring up some political, uh, for me, it is definitely uh, quite surprising how uh, women in this country can be uh, physically and uh, whatever erotically attracted to the, our former president, who I don't want to name. Um, 
So we can see attractions are so highly individual and often they are related, of course, um, to our childhood models, uh, our parents, uh, any movie characters, anything that plays a role in the culture. And then last not least, often attractions are a bit in a, how can I say, in a roundabout way. It's not kind of straight. It's not that, uh, so to say, a healthy, normal, hygienical development will then immediately go towards an attraction. Attraction have to do also with our hang-ups, uh, with our uh, own um, kind of intrinsic psyche. As we know, um, eros, for example, is much more complicated than if you would just see sexual encounters so um, I would trust your instincts because it's very physical. It's very instinctual, of course, what attracts us. But then I would also, so to say, edit this physical sexual attraction with an editor that says, okay, so now you have been uh, with three alcoholic males in a row maybe there is something not right with your physical attraction. Maybe the fourth time you don't want to have an alcoholic partner. Maybe you want to have a partner who is actually available and really there. So that's probably the best to say about attraction um, without going more into complexity. Um, about the whole issue of betrayal and affairs, I think... It's probably too short a time, uh, Shohai, to uh, do justice to this. It's such a complex issue, and it's now also so widespread, last not least because of the Internet, because there's so much more available that people are exposed to. They don't have to seek anybody anymore, go to a bar or to a dance club, they just open their uh, laptop and here they are, have all kinds of things available. So, um, but in general, it has to do with our secure attachment, has to do also with the fidelity, has to do with our integrity in uh, ways that, uh, that could, so to say, safeguard, immunize us against these temptations. Hans, we'll definitely do a show on that. And I think it's been super fascinating as an episode. Um, I think one final question. So in couples therapy, obviously you haven't had a lot of clients, a lot of experience. What are some of the common things that come up as, as disputes or friction points? And um, what does that include? Um, very common is today that people say, we just don't communicate well. We cannot communicate Um People feel often their issues are looping, which is, of course, an indication there is no resolution because they haven't addressed the issue correctly. The correct question or the statement of the problem hasn't happened. So they're, so to say, fighting and recirculating the pseudo-issues. So that's very common, communication. And, of course, what is it? Then I often say to a couple, uh, actually, it's impossible not to communicate. You're always communicating. You just don't like what is communicated. And so we can first go to, for example, 
How do you communicate? What is happening? Why do you not feel connected? How do you actually get disconnected before we go to connection? So we first want to find out how they are communicating. And when you sit them together opposite of each other, what they're doing, you can find out often very quickly the tone of voice of one partner might be dismissive. The other partner might be very critical without really fully knowing that they have already beaten down their partner for the last 10 years. So this is um, a big thing is communication. As you mentioned, betrayal, affairs, maybe one opening the relationship, all kinds of issues come up in this way. And no couple, no couple is immune in a long-term relationship to deal with sexuality, with um, maybe a breach of their desire, maybe a lack of desire. It is impossible for us humans in this complicated world to keep that going for 20, 30 years. Another issue is also what we say dealing with thirds, maybe children come in. A very important, often difficult transition is when a third person arrives in a family system. How to negotiate this? The woman, the mother is not available for the partner as she was before, as they were before. Uh, that's a big issue. Maybe the family of origin, uh, one partner is still feeling maybe mainly connected to their mother or their parents. And so they're not fully available for their partner now in their relationship, in their marriage. So these are common issues, of course, you know, fighting maybe uh, about money, all of these issues, um, domestic issues, but Often, they are not the issues that really keep the couple from openly communicating who they are, what they feel, what they need, what their true anger maybe is, what their true wounding is. When we open up to these layers, a relationship normally can get rocky because difficult issues come up. But if they're dealt well with, uh, then the relationship uh, can get truly better and not in a pseudo-harmonious way. That was an excellent end for this podcast and I really loved having you here. You've answered a lot of um, questions and you've really um, proved your knowledge on this subject and it's been super fascinating hearing from someone from UC Berkeley, a PhD. So we really appreciate you coming on hands and, and looking forward to our, our show over on Clubhouse as well. Can you tell everyone where they can follow you? Where can they reach out to you? What is the best place? Can I correct you? I don't have a degree from UC Berkeley. I live in Berkeley. I have actually my doctorate degree is from Pacifica Institute. Uh, oh, nice. Yes, of course, you explain the institute. Um, and, and where can people follow you? Um, I have a website. And interestingly, you know, uh, Hans Dahlschmidt, I'm the only Hans Dahlschmidt in the entire United States. So I cannot hide anywhere. You can find me easily. I have a website, you know, uh, stahlschmidtherapy.com. And um, I'm also on LinkedIn and then Psychology Today. Um, as uh, I think I mentioned to you before, I'm also on the core faculty of the PACT Institute, uh, which is a institute that specializes on couples therapy, trains, has trained so far hundreds, if not thousands of therapists in that modality. 
hands are we definitely looking at that especially as a founder of a, a startup app amily we're focusing on therapy we believe it's really important we believe mental health is really important and that's central to kind of the, the vision i have as i try and build out this company in the future uh, we are really looking at relationship wellness as being key not only finding your partner or like a matchmaking app but really focusing on how we can help maintain relationships and i'm very true to that mission and having you conversate with you has been super useful and i will be using hopefully the human behavior club and the human behavior enterprise that i formed to help collaborate and i would love for you to do specialized content so we'll definitely stay in touch after this to see how you can you know share the vast amounts of knowledge you have and disseminate that across so many people and and that is one of one of my missions so thank you hans um guys this podcast will be available on apple podcast and spotify so do subscribe we were live on calling up so please follow the app please download it you can tune in live have your voice featured in one of these episodes as we try and do more and more episodes here on calling up makes it super easy for the podcast to be published so i'm super happy to be working with the guys at calling so that's it from me guys take your hands really happy to meet you and connect and hopefully catch everyone in the next episode of the human behavior show see everyone bye thank you